everyone. Thanks so much for letting us into your space today. We really appreciate being a part of your day. We wanted to let you know that we have a lot going on this Damn. summer. It's not a quiet summer here. <laughs> so please be sure to check out our website for all of the upcoming things that we have going on. Be sure to like and subscribe our channel so you can see new content rolling out all yeah. the time. And we really hope you enjoy the message. So glad that you are here. Welcome to Christ Community. Um, I mean, this whole Denver Nuggets thing, I mean, isn't this awesome? I mean, it is so fun. It has been so fun to watch. And, you know, it's like the first time ever in the, the finals. And what it, what it really has captured the, the attention of so many people is the way the Nuggets play, right? I mean, think about this. How many times have you ever heard a professional sports team described as playing with humility? And yet that's exactly how the Nuggets are often described. After one recent game, the sportscasters couldn't stop talking about Nikola Jokic and the humility with which he plays. I mean, in a sport and a culture that is so often celebrity-driven, typified by the likes of LeBron James, it is so refreshing to see an amazing basketball player like Jokic who doesn't seek the limelight. He, he intentionally avoids it. Okay, so why am I talking about basketball at the start of a sermon um, in 1 Corinthians? It's because the contrast we see between the Nuggets and many other teams illustrates a struggle that the Corinthian church found itself in, not, a, not about basketball, but about this thing called wisdom. See, in, in Greco-Roman culture, like Corinth, there were these traveling orators who would come into town and they would give these powerful speeches with flowery language and espousing all sorts of wisdom. And everyone listening would view these people as being having this high status and importance. And so what had begun to happen in this fledgling church in the city of Corinth was that some of the people in this church were being influenced by this. They began to lose sight of the humility of the crucified Savior, and instead they were seeking status and self-worth from the culture around them, being seen as important and wise from the culture around them. And Paul was hearing about this and was very concerned about this, because at the heart of that is pride, right? Pride is a huge deal. Pride is this insidious, dangerous vice that more than any other sin will undermine the work of Christ in our lives. Pride is that part of us that wants to be seen by others as being valuable and important and wise and of elevated status, so in, you know, in social media terms, pride is all about likes and views, right? Pride is all about feeding the sense of self-worth through how other people view us. And what makes this so insidious is that it is something that our culture celebrates and values, but it will undermine, it will undermine the life of the gospel in us. And so, so Paul, right here in chapter one, of, of, of 1 Corinthians, he takes out his spiritual bazooka, so to speak, and he aims it directly at this issue. He specifically addresses this issue of pride, not simply to point out the problem. 
He actually provides a pathway out of the destructiveness of pride and into the life-giving experience of humility. So how do we actively resist the subtle and yet destructiveness of pride in our lives and embrace humility instead? Well, he tells us here, in the passage we're looking at today, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26, all the way to chapter two, verse five. So there are two, in this passage, there are two life-changing keys that Paul offers us here um, in the passage we're looking at today. So first key is this. We need a brutally honest assessment of ourselves. So here are these Corinthian believers who are getting caught up in this desire to be seen by their culture as having social status and an intellectual prowess and economic things, you know, all that stuff. And so that's what they're getting caught up in. And so Paul bursts their bubble in a very blunt and almost humorous way. He says this, beginning in verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame. You see what he's doing here? He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, Paul is saying, look, in the midst of your social status seeking, Let me just remind you guys of who you were when you initially came to Christ. Most of you weren't rich. You weren't wise in terms of of, of human standards. You weren't in positions of influence or political power. You weren't in the cool group or whatever. You weren't born into nobility or money. You weren't in the upper echelon of society. No, many of you wanted to be, but you weren't. And here's Paul's point. God saw you and loved you and called you not because of your social status, not because of the numbers of followers you have on Instagram or the size of your bank account. No, God chose them and called them into relationship with him simply because he loved them, period. God didn't view them through the lens of social status or wisdom or wealth. No, God God is no respecter of persons. You know, all the pecking order things that we focus here on here, you know, here on earth, you know, all those things to measure our value compared to other people. None of that matters to God. None of it matters to God. See, Paul is saying this status that you are so obsessed with achieving doesn't matter one bit to God. So why does it matter so much to you? But Paul's not done. He digs in a little deeper, sorry, to make his point. Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, right? Chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. Who's he talking about being the foolish ones? The Corinthians, right? I mean, that's what he's saying here. He is reminding them that God's plan all along has been to bestow his grace and his love on those that the world views as being foolish, weak, lowly, 
and despised. Those are the ones God chooses and celebrates and welcomes and uses to build his kingdom on earth. In other words, God's plan is the opposite, the polar opposite of the world's plan in terms of how you would build a successful business or college or sports team or whatever. See, the world says choose the best of the best Choose the most successful, the most gifted people. That's what the world says. And God says, I'm not building my kingdom that way. I'm choosing the foolish, the weak, those that society despises and looks down on. I'm choosing them, and I'm going to accomplish my purposes through them. Okay, so if you're a Christ follower, guess what that means? God didn't choose you because you were so wonderful and attractive and kind and successful and intelligent. No, God chose you because of who he is, not who you are or what you've done. Which, which levels the playing field. See, in the family of God, in the economy of God's kingdom, social status doesn't matter one bit, which, which leads to Paul's ultimate conclusion to this point, verse 29, so that no one may boast before him. See, this is what is at the heart of humility. No one boasting. So this is the heart of humility. It's honestly assessing ourselves before God and realizing there is no boasting. There there is no boasting before God in terms of our abilities and our IQ and our successes and our likes on social media, our achievements and our accolades. No, there's, there's no boasting. Now, here's what's fascinating. This word boast, it includes, the meaning of this word boast also includes this meaning of trust. See, think about that. What I'm boasting in is also what I'm trusting in, right? If we're boasting in something, it's it's something that something is what we're placing our confidence in, in terms of our self-worth or our value. That's what boasting is all about. It's ultimately about what we're trusting in. So Paul is urging them and us to stop placing our confidence, our trust in our own ability, in our own status, in our own reputation, in our own appearance or whatever. That's what the world does. That's what the world does. But the gospel offers us a completely different way of living. All right, which leads to the second key to resisting pride and embracing humility. See, not only do we need an honest, a brutally honest assessment of ourselves, which Paul gives us here, we also need an awe-filled apprehending of God. We need both of these. See, the Corinthian believers had lost sight of God in the midst of their pursuit of status. Their pursuit of status resulted in this disconnection from the fullness of life that God had provided for them in the gospel. So look at what Paul says next, verse 29, so that no one can boast, we just read this, so that no one can boast before him. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts, boast in the Lord. See, notice what Paul is saying. 
to counteract the forces of pride that are continually trying to seduce us into this status seeking, not only do we need to continually be reminded of who we were before knowing Christ, we also need to be reminded of all that God has now given us in Christ. And so then Paul tells us exactly what that is. Some specific things that are ours, not because of our social status, they're ours because of Jesus. First is wisdom. So in contrast to the wisdom of the world, telling us who's in and who's out, who's important and who's not, who's dope and who's undope, whatever, I don't know. Paul says, in the midst of all that, Paul says, Jesus is our wisdom. True wisdom is found in our union with, our relationship with Jesus. And that relationship, Paul says here, includes three things. Our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Now, those are all religious-sounding words. And some of us in the church, probably we hear those words, and they just sort of, eh, I hear that. You know, they just kind of, whatever. Um, but they're really powerful, because each one of these three words is a, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for something that Jesus has provided for us in the gospel. The first, metaphor of righteousness. That is a, that's a metaphor speaking of our legal standing before God. This is the, the whole courtroom imagery, right? Where we're, we're, we've broken God's law. We are deserving of, of, of judgment. But in Christ, we are declared not guilty by the judge. That's the, that's the imagery here. We have an undeserved right standing before God. We are righteous in Christ, not guilty. Permanently declared not guilty. The metaphor of holiness, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It, it's, it's a metaphor of, of wholeness. It's not goody two-shoes. It's, it's wholeness. To be holy means to be whole, to be a whole person, right? And this whole, the experiencing life and wholeness in him. Holiness is a really cool thing. As I said a couple of weeks ago, our whole, everyone in our world longs for holiness. They long for wholeness. And sin is what makes us less whole. All right. And then the metaphor of redemption speaks of freedom. That's what this word means. It speaks of freedom. It's, it's Jesus setting captives free from, 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 from bondage of sin, i.e. from the seeking of approval of other people to make us feel good about ourselves. He sets us free from the bondage of sin in our lives. And so Paul is like, look, these three metaphors, man, th this is who you are in Christ. This is what you have in Christ. So stop seeking some status in the eyes of the world. You are righteous. You are whole. You are freed all because of Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. Jesus is wisdom personified. You want to be wise? Awesome. Look at Jesus. Let Jesus fill you with his life and his wisdom. Let Jesus be the one you boast in. Let Jesus be the one you trust in. See, true humility comes from fully apprehending who we are and who Jesus is. And when we do that, we realize there is no boasting there is no grounds for pride. There, there is no need to spend our lives obsessing about what other people think of us and seeking status and the approval of others because life is all about him. 
Keep, keeping our eyes and our hearts focused on Jesus helps, it, it, it helps diffuse the insidious power of pride in our lives. Keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. Okay, so what Paul does next in this passage is so fascinating and it's really helpful. What he does is he takes these two things he's been talking about. He takes these, this, these principles he's been articulating and he applies it to his own life. This is so cool. Check this out. Chapter two, beginning verse one. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness And with great fear and trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, notice, this is so cool. Paul is using specific words from the argument he was just making to to them, but now he's showing how those same words apply in his own life and ministry. He's saying, look, when I came to you, when I was there with you in Corinth, I didn't come with worldly wisdom. I didn't come with eloquent speeches, like all these other traveling orators coming to town. No, I didn't come with you with that. I didn't come with flowery words and with the right social media branding and YouTube platform. No, in fact, Paul says, I came to you in weakness. He had, remember, he had just talked to them about being weak and now in the eyes of the world. And now Paul's using that same word to describe himself. Paul's humility here is pretty amazing. He he admits feeling fearful. Do you notice that? He says he felt fearful to the point of trembling. He was nervous. He was anxious about ministering to them. Why? We don't know exactly what he was anxious about, but it could very well be This feeling of self-consciousness concerning his own status in their eyes. We're going to see later in this, in the rest of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, if you study that, that there was some question in the Corinthian church about Paul's apostleship. There were people that were very, very critical of Paul. And so that may be what's going on here. These people, some people in the church are criticizing him. So he's coming to them with fear and trembling. But this is so cool. Look, what does he, so what does he do with his fearfulness? The fearfulness he felt, look at this, verse 2, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is so powerful. Notice how Paul dealt with his personal fears. He changed his focus. Fear is always the result of what we are focusing on, always, always. Remember Peter getting out of the boat? The story, if you're not familiar with this, in the Gospels, when Peter gets out of the boat, he sees Jesus walking on water, and he, hey, can I come out? And, and so Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking on water. He was doing fine until what happened? He got his eyes off of Jesus, and he started looking at the waves, and he started looking at what is going on here, right? And suddenly, the shift in focus filled his heart with fear, and he began to sink. And the same thing is true in our lives. Look, every fear you and I experience, every fear we experience, has all, all of them have a question underneath. Here's the question. What am I focusing on in this moment? I guarantee. If we're feeling anxious, we're feeling fearful, guarantee. That's the core question. What am I focusing on 
in this moment? The stock market? Politics? What other people think of me? See, underneath every fear is us focusing on something other than Jesus. So Paul says that in the midst of his fear, he resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul intentionally chose to not focus on what other people thought of him or their criticisms of him. No, he made a conscious decision to look at and focus on and trust in Jesus and his crucifixion. Why Christ crucified? Because Christ crucified shows us how much God loves us. How God views us. Perfect love casts out fear. I wonder what would happen in my life, what would happen in your life, if the moment we start feeling fear rising in our hearts about the future or about our children or about our finances or whatever, what if in that moment we resolved, in other words, we intentionally chose to focus on Jesus, who is our wisdom and our crucified Savior? What if we stopped in that moment? We feel fear. What if we stopped and said, Jesus, I am focusing on you. I am focusing on your love for me. I am focusing on Christ crucified. That simple shift in focus could have a huge impact in our lives and on our experience of fear. It certainly did in Paul's life, right? That resolve, that decision on Paul's part, to know nothing except Christ crucified, to focus on that. It had a huge impact on his ministry. Look, look at this. Think about this. F- follow me here. If, if Paul had given into his fears, okay, he's afraid of these people, what they're going to think of him. I'm coming to you to preach, but I'm, I'm afraid. If he had focused on his fears, guess what he would have been done? Guess what he would have done? He would have started to adapt his preaching so that his words would, would be impressive. So the people would be impressed with his eloquence and his, you know, his verbiage and his cultural sensitivity. Paul would have said to himself, I got to be hip and funny and smart so that people will listen to my message. I mean, talk about relevance for our culture today. Now, we so easily fall into the trap of thinking, especially in the church and those of us on staff in the church, we fall into the trap of thinking the only way people will respond to the gospel is if we have smoke machines and lights and loud music. Now, look, I'm all for removing archaic, boring barriers to keep people from, that keep people from accurately seeing Jesus. So I'm not talking about let's be as boring as possible and irrelevant as possible. I'm not talking about that at all. But I think a little corrective here. I think the church in America is often seduced by the wisdom of the world in this area, thinking we've got to be young and cool and hip and funny and relevant or else the gospel message is destined to fall on false ears. That's the wisdom of our day. But Paul refused to take the bait. He, he, he refused to depend on the eloquence and the values of the world to proclaim the gospel. Verse four, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is an amazing statement. Paul's point is that, look, had he succumbed to the pressure of the world to use eloquence and fancy words and whatever to get the gospel message across, Had he done that, the people would have put their faith in Paul, 
or in the wow factor of his preaching rather than in Jesus. See, Paul refused to make the gospel dependent upon the celebrity status of the communicator so that people would not place their faith in the communicator, but in Jesus. Look, I wonder, I wonder about these things all the time, but just ponder with me here. I wonder if one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons I wonder if why the church in the Western world has been declining in numbers, while the church in the developing world and in persecuted places like China has been exploding. Maybe it's because we are trusting in our resources, our buildings, our social media platforms, our branding, our communication style, our clothing, our worship music quality, instead of what Paul was relying on, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. (laughs) Maybe our fear of being irrelevant is actually keeping us from experiencing the very thing we need the most, the power of the Holy Spirit. This passage is so convicting to me personally. How many times over the years, I start wondering, how many times over the years have I let a fear of what people are going to think keep us from experiencing the Spirit's power? How many times has the church been so focused on being relevant and and, and cool and and excellent or whatever that 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 became what people were placing their faith in rather than Jesus? How slick everything was, how cool everything. that, That became what people were placing their faith in rather than in Jesus. God, forgive me, forgive us, forgive the church in America for losing sight of Christ crucified. See, what I I long for is what Paul describes here. He says his message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power. See, Paul is talking here about an experiential reality, something that the Corinthians experienced when Paul was preaching the gospel to them. This wasn't about them being wowed by Paul's words. Wow, what an amazing sermon. This wasn't about that. This was about people encountering God through his spirit in experiential ways. Sometimes Paul uses this word power that's used here to talk about signs and wonders, miracles that happen. As we're going to see a little later in chapter 12 of this book, the church in Corinth had some of this stuff happening, some miracles, healing. And I think that's part of what Paul's describing here, that sometimes the preaching of the gospel is accompanied by a demonstration of the gospel. It's a powerful combination, proclamation, demonstration. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. When he came to announce the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, he did so by proclaiming the kingdom and also by demonstrating it. People were healed. People were delivered from demonic bondage. He calmed the sea. These miracles gave evidence and attestation to the message that Jesus was proclaiming. And then we see the same thing happening in in continuing the book of Acts. As, As the gospel was proclaimed, it was often accompanied by dramatic miracles. Look, when when you read about or you hear about what God is currently doing around the world in some places around the world where amazing things are, you know, people are coming to Christ, Africa and places like that, the Middle East, this is often the case. This is often the case. Someone experienced a healing or a deliverance or they had a vision or a dream where they saw Jesus and pointing, you know, pointing people to Jesus and the gospel. This is often the case. 
But for some reason, in the Western world, it doesn't seem like those kinds of miracles are as prevalent. And there are any number of things, again, I, I think about with regard to this. Could be a lack of faith or expectancy, a worldview or whatever on our part. But I also wonder, I wonder if it's, it's possibly related to our culture's most pressing felt need. What is our culture's most pressing felt need? It's not medical. We have amazing medical technology. We have more hospitals than not that we need, but we have a lot of hospitals in our city, right? We have amazing medical technology. Our culture's most pressing felt need right now is mental health, anxiety, fear, depression, suicide. See, what if, what if a demonstration of the Spirit's power in our culture included God pouring out his love into people's hearts in a real way so that people experience the Father's love as a demonstration of his power. Like what Paul describes in Romans 5, 5, Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul's saying when the Holy Spirit is actively working, people will be experiencing the Niagara Falls of God's love Love being poured out into their hearts, removing their shame. And this too is a supernatural work of God's spirit. See, what if, what if these kinds of things were happening as we gather to worship God and as we hear his word? What if people's hearts were touched by the love of God for them? What if people experienced healing I recently heard Tim Mackey speak at a conference. He's the guy on the Bible Project. If you're not familiar with the Bible Project, check it out. It is amazing. Their videos and podcasts just helping explain the Bible, make it all this stuff is really good. He's an amazing guy, incredibly humble and intelligent. He knows his Bible, Old Testament scholar, all that stuff. So at this conference, he was sharing his own story about how two years ago, he just felt like something was missing in his life. And he loved the Bible. He has this podcast. Millions of people listen. I mean, he loved the Bible. He's just drawn to the beauty of who Jesus is. But he felt like he lacked this personal experience of God's presence. So one day he came to church. This was just two years ago. Came to church with his family, the church they attend. Boy, his young boys were sitting on his lap, and they were just singing some worship song that the congregation was. And, and he said he felt the presence of God come upon him in a very gentle but tangible way. It was like this tingling in his body. He'd never experienced something like this in church before. So as he's wondering what is happening to him, he sensed in his heart this whisper from God, you are not a failure. And as he was telling the story to the group of people there, he began to weep uncontrollably, just began to weep. It was like the spirit was tenderly pouring love into this very deep place in Tim's heart. And he wasn't expecting it. He wasn't specifically seeking some experience. In fact, he didn't really have a category for this. But that experience began to set him on a journey of discovering who the Holy Spirit is and how we can experience the Holy Spirit in real ways. And that was his story. Here's a Bible guy just telling us his story about experiencing the Holy Spirit in real ways. That service changed his life. But it wasn't because the sermon was amazing. I'm all for sermons and believe God uses sermons. But the ultimate reason we gather is not to hear a sermon. 
I hope that's not why we come to hear a sermon and then we head out, right? We got the information. No, I hope that's not why we come. We, uh, the, the reason we gather is not to simply hear a sermon. It is to encounter God, right? It, it is to open our hearts to his presence, to whatever he might want to say to us or do in us. He's alive. He is real. He is here. It is not about us trying to manufacture something here. No, that's not it at all. It's not about us trying to manipulate the room environment so people will be overcome with emotion. No, no, no. It is simply about us opening our hearts to the presence of God whenever we gather so that our gatherings are not about wise and persuasive words or about anyone wanting the limelight for themselves. Our gatherings are about Jesus and opening our hearts to whatever he would want to do in us. Maybe as we open our hearts to his presence, he might want to bring healing. We had someone a few weeks ago during a worship service experience a release from the chronic pain of lupus. That, that release has continued for these four weeks. Or maybe the Spirit of God would want to pour into your heart his love in a fresh way, in, in a way that casts out a fear that you're battling. Or maybe he would want to speak to you about an area of your life that he's just wanting you to surrender to him. All of those things are a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The very thing Paul is talking about in this passage. See, look, friends, when we embrace humility by focusing not on ourselves but on Jesus, it creates an atmosphere for the Spirit of God to move in us. See, this is at the heart of what we've been doing these past few weeks, when at the end of the message, if you've been here, you know this, at the end of the message, I have us stand. And then we ask the Holy Spirit to come and to move. And then we wait in his presence. We're simply, and in those moments of stillness and quiet, it may be kind of new to us, but what we're doing, all we're doing is opening our hearts in that moment just afresh to the presence and the power of God. Look, you know, I'm, I'm, let me say this, maybe more, well, I just want to say it from my heart. I'm done focusing on having polished services that impress people. I don't want to impress people. I just want people and us to encounter God. So that our faith is not resting on any wise and persuasive words or any amazing, cool worship song. Our faith is resting on God's power. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. So we're going to do that. Sometimes um, I'm encouraging people to just, if you're comfortable, you can have your hands open before you just in a posture of receptivity. If you're comfortable doing that, sometimes our posture reflects our heart. And so I just invite you if you want to do that. And we're just going to ask, I'm going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and let's just wait. And, and just see if he wants to, we're just, what we're doing, we're just opening our hearts to the presence of God right here. He's here. We're just opening our hearts to his presence. So let's do that. Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts to your presence.
And when we tune into the spirit, we're tuning in with all of our senses. So maybe you just kind of sense a whisper in your heart. Or maybe you see a picture in your mind. Or maybe you actually feel something in your body, like tingling on your face or something. We just want to pay attention to whatever the Holy Spirit may be doing as we wait on him. Holy Spirit, come. We open our hearts to you. You know, as, as we're waiting in this posture of waiting, I really felt this um, humility. There's just, um, God is inviting us into this place of humility where it's not about what other people think of us. It's not about, you know, it's just all those things that are filling our mind. There's, there's a humility. God is God. He loves us. He sees us. He knows us. And we love Jesus, and we're just humbling ourselves before him. So we humble ourselves before you, Lord. I also just had a sense, um, just looking over the sermon yesterday, today, praying this afternoon, just that fear is, I don't know, I feel like the Holy Spirit is kind of on this fear thing and this, there may be places where I, I want to invite you as we're waiting on the Lord, just specific fears where I think the Holy Spirit wants to, one, just help you see what you've been focusing on which is stirring up that fear and inviting you into this place of receiving his love in some deep places where that fear is kind of taken root. So Holy Spirit, we're inviting you here to move, to pour out love, to pour out healing, to speak to us. Maybe there are places we need to surrender to him. So we welcome you here. And what we want to do in this place, we just want this to be response, <clears throat> open to response. And so as the worship team, there's just the quietness here. I want to invite you, if you feel like, if you sense the Lord is just doing something, he's resting on you or he's speaking to you about something, you can, you can stay in your seat and just experience that, which is awesome. You can sit down if you want to. But I want to invite another response. We really want to begin creating this, this place of ministry, this place of space up here. And it's not about embarrassing him. It's not about making this special. It's just about this invitation. There may be some of you, and I, I just, sometimes when we feel like the Spirit is speaking or doing something in us, taking a step of action, attaching it to that is, can be significant. And so what I want to invite you to do is we're entering into the space of worship and welcoming the Spirit. If you feel like the Lord is laying something on your heart, he's moving in you, he's resting on you. I want to invite you just to come. One of the things maybe I talked about fear or whatever, just I invite you to come up front and just stand and receive from the Lord. And what we're going to do, we have prayer team members. After you've been up here and waiting on the Lord, just receiving from him, we have prayer team members that, um, that may just come alongside and just bless what God's doing. And if they have, if they have any sense 
God's laying something on their heart, they, they may just share that with you. If not, they're just going to pray blessing on you. And so if you want to want to experience something like that and just have someone joining you in whatever God is doing, then we invite you just to come up front as well as a part of the worship. You can come, you can go back. You, this is just all open space. So Lord, we love you and thank you for what you want to do in our hearts. We long for what Paul was talking about. We don't want to just play church. We don't want to just be wowed by sermons. We, we want you. We, we want to encounter you. So Holy Spirit, come. We, we open our hearts to your presence. We love you. We love you, Lord. Hey, friends, so wherever you are at coming out of today's message, if something kind of stirred in your heart, um, or if you want somebody to pray with you or just to talk to somebody, we have people available 24-7. Uh, you can go onto our website. There's a chat button on there, and there are people behind that chat button that would love to connect with you. Um, again, we hope you like and subscribe. Check out our website, and we will see you next time.